The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Book of Matthew, and this is where the Lord gives us the Great Commission in which he tells us that we are to go into all the world and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen and 20, Jesus said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. We're, I think most of us, if not all of us in here today, profess to be believers in Jesus Christ, and so we are quite familiar with these verses of Scripture. And if you weren't familiar with them before, you certainly are now, because the last five messages have been concerned with this particular text. A few weeks ago, I had a discussion with Lino, and he asked me if I could refer him to one of my sermons that contained just the simple gospel of Christ. And I said, well, I think that would be very easy. Uh, There are hundreds of messages. You may not even think about how many messages that I preached over 13 years here in Berean Baptist Church, but it's way up over 1,000 now. And I said, well, that's not going to be any problem. I can find plenty of messages where uh, I preached on the gospel of Christ. But then I began to look into this, and I started to look over 13 years of sermons, and I found I had trouble finding a simple message on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, I do preach the gospel of Christ nearly every Sunday. I do say something about it. It's included in every subject that I teach. I believe what Spurgeon said. He said to read your text and get to the cross as quickly as you can. Now, we study the Bible verse by verse, and so it's not often that the verses we're studying do have the simple gospel of Christ under consideration. And so as I read the text and I explain to you the text, Uh, Before we ever get to the end of the sermon, I do hope and try to do at some point to point you to the Lord Jesus Christ and find an application that shows us what he has done for sinners. So there are hundreds of sermons that I preach that have the gospel in them, but there are hardly any of them that is just on that subject, that is just on the simple gospel. Now, in these messages, I want to answer... This very important question, what is the gospel? Now, the commission is given to us in Matthew 28. We're told to preach the gospel. We're told to make disciples of all nations. And uh, it's done through the preaching of the gospel. In Mark 16, 15, it's actually stated that way. Uh, Matthew doesn't say it the same way. But in Mark, he records, Mark 16, 15, Jesus said to them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So the command is to preach the gospel. Naturally, that raises the question, what is the gospel? What is this gospel that we're supposed to preach? This is the thing that is to be believed in order that people can become disciples of Jesus Christ. But what is that gospel? And we have to know what it is very clearly and how to tell other people about it. So we're going to start with that today. We're going to look at the gospel itself. What is the gospel, and what does the word gospel mean? Well, the word is actually translated from the Greek word euangelion. So the gospel, you see on the screen, is euangelion. 
And if you look very closely, you'll find the word angel in the middle of that word, euangelion. And that actually gives us the first hint of what the gospel is and what it means. An angel is a messenger. And so angelion is the part of that word that tells us that this is a message. It's a message that God wants us to give, just as an angel was, was a, a person who gave a, a message to other people. And then you see it begins with E-U, the word you, and that is the part of the word that tells us that it's something good, that it is a good message or it is a good report. Now, originally, the word referred to any kind of a good report. For example, in ancient times, a runner might be dispatched to report to the king the progress of the battle. And when the runner came to the king, if, if uh, the armies of the king were prevailing, if they were winning, then the message that this runner would bring would be a gospel. It would be a good report, a very good message. Well, the New Testament took that word and claimed the word and applied it to the message of Jesus Christ. And today, the word gospel is almost exclusively used to refer to the good news of Jesus Christ and the redemption that he provided for man. Now, during the time of Jesus, it was called the good news of the kingdom. Jesus and John the Baptist came preaching the kingdom of God, and the good news was that the kingdom of God was about to come. And so it was called the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. We see it referred to that way in passages like Matthew 4.23 and also Matthew 24.14. In 4.23 it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And there as Jesus did that, he was pointing to what the kingdom would become, the place where God is going to rid the world of all of its diseases, of all the sin and everything. Everything that is against God is going to be uh, canceled from the kingdom. And so this was good news that Jesus was preaching about the kingdom. And then in Matthew twenty-four fourteen, Jesus said, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. And so in the time when Jesus was preaching, it was called the gospel of the kingdom. But as we go through the New Testament, we find that the terminology changes, and then it becomes the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the good news, the good report of Jesus Christ. And it's appropriate that we find it here in the end of Matthew because we are so very close to the visual demonstration of what the gospel actually is. What is the gospel? Well, Paul explained that to us in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, where he said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, the good news, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Now, in these last two chapters of Matthew, we see the good news is actually played out. In chapter 27, Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. In the end of the chapter, he was buried, 
in the tomb according to the scriptures. And then in chapter 28, he rose again according to the scriptures. And so thus Matthew records the demonstration, the visible demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in a sense, when we speak of the gospel, we're talking about all of scripture. Um, The gospel is actually all that there is to know about Jesus. The Bible, which is 66 books that are compiled, 66 books are the message of Jesus Christ. They're the story of what God has done for man. It's the good news that God had intended to redeem man from the curse of sin. And so any time that I pick up this Bible and I begin to preach from it, I'm preaching the good news. I'm preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. The whole Bible is good news because there is nothing about Christ that's not good. In Him, Scripture says, are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The Bible says that Christ is the living Word. It says that He is all truth. And it says that the truth will make you free. And then the Bible says about Jesus that He is righteousness and He is holiness. And it tells us that You have to have both of those. You have to be a righteous person. You must be a holy person in order for you to see God. And then there are many places in Scripture where the goodness of Christ is expressed in other ways. You're familiar with the passage that says that Christ is the lily of the valley. It says that he is the bright and morning star. The Scripture says that Christ is altogether lovely. And there's one that I particularly like that was used by the Puritan John Flavel as he preached from the text of Haggai 2, verse number 7. And that verse says, And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. And so Flavel made a point of describing Jesus as the one who is the desire of all nations. Everything that there is to know about Jesus Christ is good. Anything and everything that you learn about Christ is good. Everything about him is a good report. And so therefore, it is good news. Or as the Word of God says, it is the gospel. Now that particular aspect of the gospel, we find right there in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, where in verse number 20, it says that we are to teach people to observe all things that Christ did. We're to learn everything that there is to know about Christ because the knowledge of Christ is the good report that becomes sweeter and sweeter to you every day the more that you know Him. To know Christ is to love Him. It's to see things that are good in Him. It's the best information that you can ever have. And so this point is definitely true, that the gospel is as comprehensive as the entire Bible itself. All doctrines of the Christian faith are good news. But there is something very pointed and very specific about the gospel. And what we can do is we can shorten it to a very simple statement so that people don't need to be concerned that they have to learn everything that there is in the Bible before they know that Jesus is good. That you don't have to learn all Bible doctrines and be acquainted with all of that to understand why Jesus is so good. Now, quite frankly, all of that information in the Bible becomes overwhelming. That's the quest of our entire Christian life, to find out about Jesus Christ, everything that's written about Him in the Bible, so that we know Him better and we understand better why Christ is so good. That's the quest of the Christian life. 
But what we have to do to the person who is the unbeliever who can't see all of that right now is to shorten this and to help them to understand that the Bible is very specific about why the gospel is such good news and it is because the gospel means salvation. The gospel is salvation to everyone that believes. Now here it says in Romans 1.16, the Apostle Paul wrote, This is your good news. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Or as Paul said in that explanation of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 2, he said, I preach the gospel to you, I preach it to you, because it is by the gospel that you are saved. Now, a few weeks ago, I told you about a conversation that Jorge had with someone that he was witnessing to. And Jorge, as he was witnessing to this man, asked the man, Are you saved? And the man just gave a kind of a flippant uh, answer to that, and he said, save from what? Am I saved from what? And that might seem a little bit funny at first, but that's a very good question. Save from what? And you have to be able to answer that question. You know, you must know the answer to this question, save from what, before you can have an understanding of why Jesus Christ is so good. And so let's begin the outline there. And we'll answer this question, saved from what? Number one in your outline is the sinful condition of man. Now sometimes we fail to give people the credit they deserve when they feign ignorance of being sinners. It's not really, it's not really hard to prove that people are sinners. And that's because God has written a moral code on the heart of every person. No matter where you go in the world, the code is exactly the same. Now, I don't know if there actually are any uncivilized people that are left in the world. I do know there are some people who are less civilized than others. But I also know this, that there's none in any civilization that has ever been found, ever discovered by any person, by anyone, there's never been found people who do not recognize the difference between right and wrong. Every culture has a system of laws, and whether they know this or not, those laws were written on their heart by God. That's actually proof of the creation. It's actually proof that God does exist, because the difference between things that are right and wrong is a consistent difference no matter where you go. No matter what people that you're talking about, the difference between right and wrong, things that are right and wrong, is the same among all people. There isn't a society anywhere that doesn't have a moral code and some form of punishment for breaking that moral code. There's no one who needs to be told that it's wrong to steal. Nobody has to go read a book in the library to find out that it's wrong to kill another person. Every one of us, every person in every society recognize that it's wrong to lie. You're not supposed to lie to people. And it's also built into this moral code to know that there is a God. Now, that doesn't mean that people know who the true God is, but they do believe that there is a God, that there is a God to whom they must answer. And so no matter where you go in the world, you're never going to find a person that has been born an atheist. There is no such thing as a naturally born atheist. People universally believe that there is an afterlife. And though they don't understand it all, they do believe this, that somehow what they do in this life does have bearing 
on what happens in the afterlife. Now, the Bible makes it very clear why that's true, and about, it makes it clear about the true God who made that true. And the Bible describes our moral condition. And this is why there is no one who has ever lived, who has lived a perfect life, and has kept all the laws of the civilization under which they live. Why is that true? Well, the story begins with humanity, or the humanity of, uh, uh, with Adam uh, and what he did. Adam simply means man. Man came on the scene. God created man. And this first man disobeyed God, and he became a sinner. And so all people after him also became sinners because they're born with Adam's sinful nature. Now, there are many people who try to escape the reality of that, and they say, well, that's not true. Uh, no, no, that's, that's not how people, why people are like this. Well, then you're left with a, a way to try to explain how is it that all people in all time, everywhere, come out exactly the same? How is it that people are the same no matter where you go? Everybody is exactly the same. All of us are sinners. 1 John 3 14, or 3, 4 rather, says that sin is the transgression of the law. And since we do understand this, that the breaking of the law brings punishment, we know that breaking God's law will most certainly bring punishment. Now there are some people who say, well no, God is love. God is not going to punish people. And yet we also believe that God is a righteous judge. And we would never believe that a righteous judge would let people off after they've broken the law. A righteous judge always enforces the penalty of the law. And God is the most righteous judge of all. God never does wrong, and so he is always going to enforce the penalty of the law. And so you really do need to know the answer to this question. Saved from what? And the answer to that question is saved from God's punishment. And the Bible describes to us what God's punishment is. There is a punishment for anyone who breaks his law. Man's law says, break this law and you will serve a penalty. There is a penalty for breaking the law. And God's law is exactly the same. And the scriptures use the principle of logical argument that says that if man's law is broken and requires punishment, then how much more is punishment required when we break the laws of the sovereign universe. Now, if you commit the worst crime under man's law, what do you get? The worst penalty that any of us could ever suffer under man's law is the death penalty. That's the ultimate. Well, breaking God's law is much more serious. In fact, in breaking one of his laws, no matter how insignificant that you might think it is, by your estimation... The Bible says breaking one of God's law, any of God's laws, brings a sentence of death. But it doesn't just say that the sentence of death is the loss of your life, but it also says it is the loss of your soul. And it tells us that it is the loss of your soul in eternal punishment in hell. God's law is eternal, and that's why his punishment is eternal. And that punishment is everlasting death. It is a prolonged, eternal death in the fires of hell. And I don't know of any other way to describe that except that it is a conscious death in the suffering of eternal flames where Scripture says the smoke of the torment goes up forever and forever. So this is a critical factor 
in understanding all of this. Answering the question, save from what? This is a very critical factor because unless you tell people about this awful place that is called hell, then they'll have no idea what they're being saved from. That's what you have to teach. You have to tell people about hell or else we never have an answer to the question, save from what? And thus we have no good news to tell. Well, I'll tell you, this is a sad thing and something that the New Testament never sanctions, and that is a preacher, that a preacher could ever be a preacher of Jesus Christ without being able to tell you why knowing Christ is so good. He's not a savior to make you wealthy. He's not a savior to take away your physical pains. He's not a savior to make you happy. He is a savior for this. That is a savior to save you from hell. And that is the most important thing that you'll ever find out about this information because what you do not want to do under any circumstances is to lose your soul in hell. The Bible says, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? But if we have any difficulty in this area trying to get people to understand what this is about, it's that people think that they really haven't done anything bad enough to be punished. Even though you might get them to the point that they understand that they're sinners, they really don't understand, am I really bad enough that I would need to be saved? Am I really bad enough that God would send me to hell? Well, that brings me to our second observation, and that is the righteous expectation of God. How bad do you have to be to go to hell? Well, you don't have to look any further than the book of Matthew to find out. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus was confronted by a religious group called the Pharisees. Now, those of you who've been with our study, you know from the very beginning, we've talked about these Pharisees and what they believed and who they were and the problem that Jesus had with them. But if you want to shorten all that information to a very good description of them, you could call them the most fanatical do-gooders on the planet. And their system of religion said that if you're going to go to heaven, you have to keep everything in God's law down to the smallest detail. And believe it or not, they were right. And, but they weren't content. They weren't content to, abide, content to abide by the written law of God. They thought that the law needed better explanation. And so what the Pharisees did was to put other laws on top of the laws that were given in the Bible, and they decided to make more, so they added hundreds of new regulations on top of that law. And the Pharisees said that anyone that does not keep God's law and keep all the things that we have added on top of those things, that person is a sinner. And the sinner can't go to hell. But yet they didn't believe that they were actually sinners. They didn't believe that they did anything wrong. They justified themselves in everything that they did. They found a way to get around calling themselves sinners. So one day they came uh, to the disciples of Jesus and they had a charge against him. They noticed that Jesus had been eating with publicans, that is, tax collectors, and with sinners. And in their mind, that showed that Jesus himself was a sinner. And so they said, why does your master, the one who is supposed to be so good, so righteous, so holy, why is he eating with sinners? In Matthew chapter 9, And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. 
But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now Jesus' purpose was to save sinners, not to save people that are already righteous. Now was Jesus saying here that these Pharisees are righteous? That they're righteous people? Is he saying that they are good people? No, he's saying here that he is not going to have anything to do with self-righteous people. In other words, he will not have anything to do with any person who says, I'm not a sinner. Jesus didn't come to save people who aren't sinners. And so if you say, I'm not a sinner, you sinner, you can forget about having anything to do with Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that you have to admit. I am a sinner. I've broken God's law. Now, you keep in mind here. Now, here we do have the critical mistake of the Pharisees here. They are the people who are the best of the best at keeping God's law. But the question is, are they good enough? Are they good enough the way that they are? They try their very best. They do better than anybody else at keeping God's law. Are they good enough to get into heaven? Jesus answered that question in the greatest sermon he ever preached. In Matthew 5, verse 20, he said, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of God. And when the people heard that, they said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did he actually say this? Is it even possible to be more righteous than the Pharisees? Look how strict they are. Look how good they live their lives. Look what they do. What great examples they are of people that they ought to be. Is it even possible to live a life that's better than the Pharisees? And yet this is exactly what Jesus said. You have to be better than them. And then he followed it up with a mind-boggling assertion. He said in the 48th verse, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And that is God's expectation. If you're going to go to heaven, you must be perfect. And anything short of perfection, then yes, you are bad enough to be punished and to go to hell. Heaven is perfection. God does not let anything but perfection into heaven because you know what would happen if he did? It wouldn't be perfect any longer. So you have to be perfect in order to get into heaven. That doesn't mean that you have to be mostly good. It doesn't mean that six days out of a week you are to be good. And you know, everybody falls down every now and then. Everybody just can't do it all the time. You make a mistake every now and then, but I just be mostly good, then I can get into heaven. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you have to be perfect in order to get into heaven. That means absolutely no sin. And Jesus nailed it down hard and fast when he said, here's how you get into heaven. You must be like God. You must be perfect because God is perfect. That's the standard for heaven. And so no one goes in who isn't perfect. Well, this all sounds like we're getting very bad news instead of good news. Are you perfect? No. Are you a sinner? Yes. Have you ever told a lie? Yes, you have. Have you ever said a curse word? Uh, Yeah, some of you, even in church, you say curse words. Yes, you've done that. Have you ever thought a bad thought about someone? Yes, you've done that. Have you ever had a bad thought about someone of the opposite sex? And sadly, I have to add this, even of the same sex today. Have you had a bad thought? Have you ever made any mistakes? 
Are you going to go to heaven? No, you're not. Now the Pharisees were the best of the best. There's no one that lived anywhere that was better than them. Nobody here even remotely approaches the goodness of these nitpicking compliers to God's law. Nobody matches the Pharisees, and yet they're still not good enough. And Jesus said, you must be better than them. Now let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're just going to take a look here at the kind of sins that will keep you out of heaven. What kind of things do you do that will keep you out of heaven? It's an interesting list that we have here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 9. And by the way, this is just one of many lists that you find in the Bible. We'll just pick this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 9. It starts this way. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you remember the scripture that says, There is none righteous, no, not one. And it says, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now it goes on to give us a list. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Most of you will look at that list and you say, well, I've done pretty good in that list. That looks like I'm going to make it into heaven just fine. Well, let's examine it for just a minute. Take a look at it. It starts with fornicators. Now, maybe you've been able to steer clear of this one. Fornication. That means to have sex with someone that you're not married to. Did you know that the statistic now is that 95% of people in America have had sex before marriage? What does that mean according to this passage of Scripture? Well, we would say 95% of people are not going to go to heaven because they're fornicators. But maybe you're in the 5% that never did that. Let's go on. Next comes idolatry. Idolaters are not going to heaven, it says. Have you been guilty of idolatry? Let me help you with that one. You don't have to have an idol at home and bow down to it and worship it to be an idolater. Let me just ask you, have you ever put anything before God? Have you ever put anything before God? Have you ever missed a church service because you had something that you wanted to do? That's a form of idolatry. Have you ever done that? What about adultery? Adultery is defilement of marriage. And Jesus said that just thinking about this sin will keep you out of heaven. In other words, thought processes, not even the actual act, thought processes will keep you out of heaven. Now, I'm going to skip the rest of the list, and I want to take you to one that I know is going to catch every single person in this room and everywhere. This is Revelation 21, verse 27, where it says that all liars, all liars are not going to heaven. There are no liars that are going to be in heaven. 1 John 1, 8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So now you see, if you say that you have not sinned, you are a liar. So that pretty much sums up the statistic that we're looking for, and that is 
100% of people are on the way to hell. 100% of people are on their way to hell. And so there you see it. Nobody meets God's expectation of perfection, and so everybody is going to hell. Now, what have we learned here? Well, we've learned that every person is in a hole that is too deep to climb out of. That we're in a horrible, deplorable condition. That we are under the sentence of God's punishment because we're not perfect as God is perfect. We need perfection, but we don't have it. And the Bible says that we are on the way to hell because of it. But before I leave that point, I have to dig the hole a little bit deeper. Number one, if you could turn it all around right now, if you could just, from this moment on, live an absolutely perfect life, if you could live in total perfection from this moment and never commit another sin, you still couldn't go to heaven. And you say, why? What if I get it all fixed right now? What if I turn it around right now? I don't ever sin again. You can't go to heaven. Because what are you going to do with all the past sins that you have committed? What are you going to do with all the things that you did before? You've already broken God's law. You are a lawbreaker. You're just waiting for the penalty to be leveled on you. You're a lawbreaker. And God is not going to pass on punishment. So you have to answer for what you have done. And then number two, you're not going to heaven because you're the walking dead. You live in spiritual death. The Bible says there's not a thing that you can do that will please God. You are in spiritual death. You're dead to God, and He's never going to take you as long as you're that way. You know, sometimes people say, things are so bad that they can't go anywhere but up. But when we talk about this, things are so bad, they're not going to go anywhere but down. This is not going to get better. Because every day that you live, you are piling up more sins, more reasons why God should doom you to an everlasting hell. And what is it that you need to be saved from? You need to be saved from your personal accountability for all the sins that you have committed, for all the laws that you have broken. All this is piled up against you. Well, that brings me to the third part of the good news. And we're not going to finish it all today, but I don't want to leave you in total despair. I do want to tell you something good here. So here's our third observation, and that is the sacrificial substitution of Christ. Who is going to be punished for your sin? There are only two options. Either you, the sinner, must be punished, or an acceptable substitute must be punished. Now, what if I were to tell you that there is someone who is willing to take all of your punishment for you? And I'm not talking about your mother or your father. I'm sure that your mother or your father would not like to see you go to hell. And so they might say, well, I'll take the punishment for them. I'll suffer it myself. That won't work. I wish I had words to describe to you how great that God's grace is. Because only God could ever be so kind that he would not take you and me, who are so richly and desperately deserving of the worst that he could possibly do to us, and yet he would allow someone else to take our punishment for us. God has given a substitute to take punishment for us. And the one who did this could not be your father or your mother. It couldn't be another man. It couldn't be just a man because every person is a sinner. 
And if a person could die for sin, all that he could ever do is to die for one man's sins. That's what Scripture says. All you could ever do is die for one man's sins. You couldn't die for another person's sins. And not only that, but there's nothing in any person that's meritorious for sin. So even if you did die for your sin, it's no good for you. It's not going to help you. And then neither could God accept an angel as a substitute for sin. Angels don't have man's nature, and so they're not capable of death. They're not capable of withstanding death for every person because they don't die. There is no physical death for an angel. So the substitute has to be someone who is capable of death, but also someone who is perfectly obedient to all of God's commands so that he personally is not a sinner. In other words, this person must have man's nature that can die and also have God's nature that can be perfect. And that only leaves one candidate. There's only one who can be both of those. He must be both God and man. He must be a God-man. Only God can be God and be perfect, but God can't die. And so God had to become a man, and that's what Jesus did. He is the eternal God who became man in order to satisfy God's law for us. Theologians stated in this way, The Son of God, by the appointment of the Father, freely took upon him our nature, yet without sin, honored the divine law by his personal obedience, and by his death made a full atonement. That means a full satisfaction for our sins. So here's the first really good news in what we've heard today. It is that God allowed Jesus to satisfy the perfection of his law for us. You can never be perfect, and that's what God requires. But rather than send you to hell because you can't be perfect, God sent Jesus into the world to live a perfect life for you. He couldn't satisfy God's law unless he was actually obedient to it. And so he came to this earth and made himself subject to God's law. He became flesh so that he could live without sin and be the perfection that you cannot be. God is not going to let you into heaven unless you have a passport that says, this person is perfect. He's allowed to enter because he is perfect. Well, how's that going to happen? How will that happen? Well... To get righteousness, you have to earn it. And since Jesus is God, what he was able to do was to earn enough righteousness in his perfect life that it would be sufficient for the perfection of every person who believes in him. The perfection for every person that is in heaven. But there's something else that has to be done. And that is there has to be a way to get his perfect righteousness that is in his account to your account. You, you need to get his righteousness over to your account. Now, since the message is a simple gospel message today, let me keep this on simple terms for you. Think of it this way, like a credit account. Everybody in here probably has a credit account. On one side of the ledger, of the credit account, is all the things that are charged against your account. You put out your card, they charged against it, and there's a whole list of things that are charged against you. That's the way your sins are. They are charged against your account. Every sin that you commit is a debt that has been charged against you. And that debt is owed to God. 
And every sin that you have committed has a corresponding amount of punishment that is attached to it. And that punishment must be inflicted in order to settle the debt. Now the problem is that the debt that you have is against an eternal God. And so that means that the guilt of your debt is an everlasting one. Your debt can never be paid in full. You go, if you die and you go to hell, you'll stay there forever and forever and forever because you can never pay for one sin that you have committed. That's because your debt is an eternal debt. It can never be paid for. And you have so many of these debts that they can't even be counted. Now let me show you what happens to those whose credit account has been charged up to the max. These people must appear before the judge who's going to settle the account. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. So your account is in God's record book. Every sin that you have ever committed has been recorded. Since the time that you were born, everything that you've ever done has been put into God's record book. And your account is filled up. And when God looks under your name and he sees just one sin, just one thing that's charged against you, it's lights out. That's the death penalty for you. Just one sin. But when God looks under your name, he doesn't have to hunt for anything because you've actually got pages and pages and pages of things that you piled up against him. Well, this is what Christ did. He took the righteousness that he earned in his perfect life and he put it to your account in order to cover that debt. All the charges, if you could see this, I mean, with physical eyes, what you would see is all the charges clicked off. All those charges marked paid in full so that there isn't punishment, any punishment that's due for them. Or you said a bad word, that's gone. You had a bad thought, that's gone. You told a lie, you told multiple lies, all of it's gone. Is that good news? You're, you're able to escape the punishment because it's as if none of the charges have ever been made. And so you've been set free from those charges so that you'll never suffer a minute of punishment for them. But wait just a minute. There's still the matter that each of those sins was actually committed. Each of them has actually earned punishment, and they can't be dismissed without punishment. Each one of those sins has offended the holiness of a perfectly righteous God, and somebody has to pay for them. God's the righteous judge. Somebody has to pay for that. And that's where we go to Matthew 27. And there's where we see Jesus on the cross. And we see that his hands and his feet are nailed there, and he's bruised and he's bleeding. He's been separated from his father, and he's in spiritual torment that is so bad that no human can ever imagine it. The physical pain of it is excruciating. The mental torture of it is exhausting. The spiritual pangs of that separation from his father has wrenched out of him everything that there is so that the horrible suffering that he, that he would, endured on the cross was able to pay God for the sins that you have committed. Jesus suffered a vicarious death. That means simply that it was on the behalf of, that it was in the place of others. In other words... He is a substitute dying for others. And so on the cross, what God did was to shut out the lights of heaven as he poured out his wrath on Jesus 
and he became a sin offering for us and the fury of hell that we should have suffered was poured out on him. And the suffering for those sins satisfied God for what is on your account. Your sins do not stay on your account. Though they got transferred over to Jesus Christ and when they did, God saw the sins on him and God punished Jesus Christ for what you have done. So his wrath was poured out on him instead of on you. It's by that transaction that you are reconciled to God. God's wrath is removed from you and placed on Jesus. That's the good report. That's euangelion, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ was buried, died, he was buried, he arose from the dead, and his resurrection was God's seal. It was God's seal that the transaction was complete and that God had accepted it. What are you saved from? You're saved from a cross that should have been yours. And you're saved from eternal punishment that you so desperately deserved. That's the good news of the gospel. And this is the significant point of it. The gospel is salvation. Now I've explained Christ's part of the transaction, but we've not yet actually talked about your part in this. And what I don't want you to do is to leave here today and misunderstand anything that I'm saying about this, don't leave here today saying that everything that happened with Christ on the cross was prospective. That is, that it was hypothetical. So that a payment has been made, and the only thing that's waiting is for you just to accept that payment has been made. No, we're not talking about something hypothetical here. This is not a payment that has been made whether you believe it or not. No, 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 no. Your belief in this is just the affirmation that you are included in the number for whom Christ died. Now, the gospel has other parts to it. Next week, we're going to look at that here in the book of Matthew, and I want to complete the gospel and the commission and tell you more about this wonderful redemption that's provided in Jesus Christ, and I want to talk to you about the realization of the gift and how you can know if that gift was for you. How do you know that the gift was for you? It's not a hypothetical thing. He paid for actual sins of actual people and delivered actual people from hell. It's not a payment made for anybody and everybody that just, whether they believe it or not. You need to understand that. So how do you realize that the gift is actually made for you, that you're a part of that? That's what I want to help you to understand. I think that's worth a return trip. I hope that you come back next week. Heaven or hell depends on what you learn in that next message. The gospel of Jesus Christ, a good report, very good news, because it is salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who came into this world and was willing to give himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Lord, there's nothing that's ever been done so great for man than what Jesus did. The best humanitarians, the most philanthropic people can never match the great gift that Jesus has given in salvation. And we thank you, Lord, that you loved us so much that you were willing to give your own son to die, that you put our deeds above Jesus Christ himself, your own son, and let him suffer the hell that we so richly deserve. Well, we thank you for that wonderful truth. I pray that you would lay it on the heart of some sinner today. If there's someone here who doesn't, hasn't yet believed in this 
and this wonderful truth of Jesus Christ, I pray, Lord, today you'll open their hearts to the gospel. Cause them to believe. Open their eyes to see this wonderful sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We give you the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.